0: Welcome to 1% Wiser. Today I'm having a conversation with Chris Field. Chris is an author and founder of Mercy Project, an organisation that's responsible for rescuing hundreds of children from modern slavery in Ghana. In this conversation, we talk about Mercy Project's unique approach to tackling this problem, but don't immediately switch over to something more cheerful because we also cover other more light-hearted topics, such as Chris's viral ice cream review and his approach to doing more good in the world, which is also the subject of his new book, A Billion Hours of Good, I found Chris's story and message inspiring and full of hope. I'm sure you will too. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Chris Field. So Chris, uh, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Looking forward to it.
0: Thanks, Chris. Uh, you've lived a really interesting life from running for mayor of your hometown, age 13, to starting an incredible organization, rescuing children from modern slavery. But I want to start with something perhaps a little more lighthearted than that. I'd like to hear about what did you write about ice cream that went viral? <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, so I'm a huge ice cream fan. I I love running. And one of the reasons I love running is because it lets me eat a lot of ice cream. So I started a few years ago just kind of ingest for fun to write reviews around some of my favorite ice cream flavors, just kind of intentionally over the top reviews as though I were this sophisticated food critic or something, but I would weave in sort of pop culture, you know, into those reviews. So I did that a few times and they, you know, that people enjoyed them. They got, you know, maybe a thousand shares or something on Facebook. Like they did fine. And then this, my favorite ice cream company came out with this new ice cream and it was very different than anything they'd ever made before. And the day they came out with it, I went, I bought some and I wrote the review and I guess it was the best review I'd ever written or I just got lucky or it's just, you know, timely, whatever, but it just totally went crazy. I think it had something like 67,000 shares and reached three to 4 million people and actually led to a relationship with that ice cream company where the 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 CEO of that company actually ended up endorsing my first book because of that review. So that was a lot of fun. And I think a reminder that everyone wants to smile more, everyone wants to laugh more, and that you know, it's one of the things we all share in common, I think, is that we, we we live in a world that can sometimes be really dark and tough. And when we find those things that are silly and fun, it's just fun to laugh and to kind of remember some of those things that aren't as important. So that was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, making people laugh is a is a great skill and really valuable thing to bring to the world. We all need to absolutely. laugh more, as you say. Well, especially, you know, and then as you mentioned, the world could be uh, could be quite a quite a dark place, and that brings us on to I guess the next topic, which is what can you tell us a bit about your project mercy project what what is that
1: yeah, so eleven years ago, really started twelve years ago, I read a book about child trafficking, and you know now talking about human trafficking is most everyone immediately knows what we 're talking about, but twelve years ago this wasn 't really on anyone 's radar, certainly not in the United States where I live. And I mean, just wasn't people just weren't talking about, they didn't know what it is. So I didn't know what it was. I read a book. It talked about these children who'd been trafficked in Ghana, West Africa. And I was just heartbroken and felt like somebody has to do something about this. And I didn't really know much about the work. There was some work going on over there, but not much. And So I Googled the author's name, found her phone number, called her, asked her to go to Africa with her. Three months later, I was in Ghana, went out on the world's largest man-made lake called Lake Volta, started meeting these children. And again, just was heartbroken over the reality of this plight and came home, really was motivated to try and do something, but didn't know what to do. And so I did kind of the classic I think response for a lot of us when we see something, I started raising money in the hopes that I could, you know, hand it off to somebody that could do something with it. And in that journey, about nine months that I was raising money, my wife and I, we discovered that there was really no one getting at the root cause of this problem in Ghana, which in Ghana happens to be poverty. And these fishermen. Who own the children, most of whom were actually trafficked children themselves. And it's just this vicious cycle of poverty that goes round and round and round. And no one was really addressing that root cause. It was several gr- groups and organizations addressing the symptoms, but no one was really getting at the root. And so it was like, man, now that I know this, what am I going to do about it? You know, it's like once you know, you do better and that felt really scary, to be honest. I was 27 years old. I had a background in nonprofit. I've been doing nonprofit work since I was 19 in college, but it's something altogether different to have the audacity to go to a developing country 5,000 miles away and try to do something. But I felt so strongly about it, so compelled that I would rather try and fail than live the rest of my life wondering What might have happened if I'd been willing and had the courage to try? And so I tried. So I quit my job and we had a nine month old baby. And I started Mercy Project with the intention of doing whatever we could to help these kids. And so we spent almost the entire first year just trying to learn what was really happening in Ghana. We tried to take a posture of humility, of learning, of listening. We didn't crash into Ghana with our Western ideals and you know force it upon the people. We went to the locals and asked them, "Why is this happening? What do you think could keep it from happening?" Interviewed the fishermen, interviewed the families of the trafficked children, interviewed the trafficked children that we could get alone for enough time. I mean, really, just try to learn everything we could. Took a super deep dive, and you know, I'll tell you as an aside, I don't say this enough. I'm incredibly grateful that I had donors in that first year that understood they were funding a foundation and they didn't try to make me go faster at the expense of doing it the right way because it's not lost on me what a gift that is. That I basically had an entire year of runway to get the solution right before just having to jump in and try to do something just to validate the the donor's dollars. So I want to mention that because I don't say that enough. But we ultimately discovered it was a deep, deep issue of poverty and that if we were going to make a real difference and get at the root cause, we were going to have to essentially replace the need for the children in the first place. And that meant some sort of economic empowerment. So that began a new journey of figuring out what's that economic empowerment. So fast forward Eleven years later, our process is pretty unique and innovative. We go into these fishing communities. We teach them how to do aquaculture or cage fishing, which replaces the need for the child labor. Actually, the average family makes about 16% more from doing the cage fishing and aquaculture than they make with the labor of the children. Which allows the community to voluntarily release the children back into their families, which we think is critical uh, because it allows those fishermen who, again, have been trapped in this vicious cycle themselves to become part of the solution instead of part of the problem. It lets them join us in that journey from shame to pride. And that process has helped us uh, rescue and reintegrate 201 children back into their biological families, where all those children are now attending school. And we believe will become some of the future leaders of Ghana because of their resilience and grit and these really challenging things that they faced uh, that have now made them better, stronger human beings.
0: Wow, that's a, an amazing an amazing story, and there's so much to unpack there. I'd like to just step a, a back for a second and try to help orient people to understand this problem a little bit better, understand the scale of what we're talking about here. You, you mentioned that people are a bit more familiar with, with human trafficking and modern slavery nowadays, but I still think that people tend to... Think of slavery as something that's kind of in the past, and but that isn't really true, uh, as far as I can tell. Do you, do you have any, is there anything you can tell us about kind of the scale of this problem nowadays? It's
1: huge. I mean, I wish I didn't have that news for anyone who was paying attention. I mean, it's estimated. By people like Kevin Bales, who runs an organization called Free the Slaves, um, that he's kind of been at the forefront of this. When I was started doing research 12 years ago, he was like the only person talking about this on a large scale. But you know, you mentioned the U.N. earlier, related, if anyone's really that interested and I'm sure other countries do this too, but I'm most familiar with the United States. The United States State Department puts out a report every single year called the Trafficking in Persons Report, TIP. And they literally go country by country around the world, including the United States, talking about how large a problem human trafficking is and where it takes place. So like in Ghana, it's in the fishing industry and in the gold mines. And there's countries like India where it's in the carpet looms. Or the brick kilns. There's countries like in Southeast Asia where it's there's sadly young girls who are trafficked into the sex industry and Thailand and other places. So, you know, I think I think the reality is it's extremely prominent. Millions and millions of people affected by modern day slavery, and it's very complex. I mean, the solution that's needed. For a carpet loom in India versus a sex brothel in Thailand versus children fishing in Ghana, it's not the same solution. And I think that's one of the challenges. This is really a challenge across the board on any social problem is that the complexity of our solutions has rarely matched the complexity of the problem. And I think this is a huge byproduct of the fact that the public sector, or sorry, the private sector, the commercial sector, the business sector rewards innovation with dollars and government/slash NGO does not reward innovation with dollars. <laughs> they we and so you tend to attract a certain kind of person. If somebody's going to be innovative and take risk and entrepreneurial, they're typically going to end up in the private sector where they have the potential to cash in on those talents. And and what so you've ended up with a lot of well-intended, well-purposed, good-meaning intentions that do not match the complexity of the problems that we're we're trying to solve. And I think that's a huge gap that I hope people like Bill and Melinda Gates and other foundations that are kind of coming over from the business side that I hope they'll continue to push the envelope. Because there's just a huge, huge need for us to bridge that gap between public and private as it relates to every problem, but particularly problems like modern day slavery, which is still significant.
0: Yeah, no, it's shocking the scale of it really in, in 2020. 2021, that there's still so widespread throughout the world. But I think your approach is very interesting, how you you managed to break the cycle there. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. What do you think, What how did you, how did you break the cycle? And what could you, what could you, what could other areas of the world learn from what you, from your approach or from your, or from your solution?
1: You know, when we were about to rescue our very first group of trafficked children and walk out of that first village with them ten, almost 10 years ago now. I remember that I knew some fishermen had been trafficked children themselves, but for whatever reason, we were so young and and my experience was so limited at that point that it had not been a key part of any of our research. It was just It was sort of a known byproduct, like, oh, we know that's happening some, but that's not our focus. Hmm. And just almost as an aside, I mean, I, I can't even claim that this was purposeful. I remember that very first day. I mean, we're literally about to walk out of this village with 24 children to take them to a rehabilitation center and then to reintegrate them with their families a few weeks later. And I remember we're sitting under the mango tree in that little fishing village. And I asked the question through an interpreter. I said, how many of you in this village were trafficked children yourselves? And the reason I was asking is because I wanted to thank them because I think one of the bravest things we can do is not use our experience as an excuse to give the next generation an equal experience. And I think we tend to say, well, I I did that and I'm fine. Like I, I endured that as, as though that's justification, like, you know, and you see this in a small scale, like fraternities and sororities that are like do hazing, you know? And, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily here to speak about that, but like in, in the military when there's hazing and stuff, it's like, well, I, I turned out fine. It's like, but I mean, Was it good? Like, did it make you a better person? You know, or was it just like I survived? Like, the goal should not be to survive, the bar should be a little bit higher than surviving. And I just wanted to thank them because my gut was there's going to be a handful of these people that were trafficked children. And I just want to make sure I acknowledge, I think it's so courageous to give the next generation something that you didn't have access to yourself because you can be bitter that you didn't have it, or you can be grateful that you have a chance to give someone else something you didn't have. Well, I was shocked when three-fourths of the community raised their hands, men, women, I mean, across the board. I was like, oh, shoot. And that's when it dawned on me how deeply – cyclical and vicious this cycle was. That here we are in a community where 75% of these people had actually been trafficked children themselves. And then it started to make sense as I pulled that apart because it was like, wait, if the only thing you've done since you were five years old to 17 years old, when you're big and strong enough to overcome your master, if the only thing you've ever done is fish and you don't know how to speak English because you never went to school you don't know how to write your own name and you don't know how to count. And you only know the local dialect of the little village you live in, in a country where there's a hundred dialects. I mean, you can't very well run away and show up at the bank and apply for a job to be a teller. I mean, that's just, that's not practical. And so what do you do? You marry someone in the village that you grew up with and you buy some traffic kids and you just do the same thing again. I mean, it's, it's just like, it's it's what it is. There's There's just not really any other option. And so for us, we had to figure out how do we not punish these fishermen who, yes, they are committing a crime. There's no question. And I'm not justifying that. I'm not excusing that. I don't like it. But the truth is, it is very much a crime of necessity in many ways That. It would be short-sighted to think that they could just easily go out and overcome this. Now, do some young children not become traffickers? Absolutely. Absolutely. And kudos to them. And I love those stories and they're beautiful and they're powerful, but it's not the normal average story. So even if I don't like the average story, even if it makes me uncomfortable, even if it frustrates me, it's... that's immaterial. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, that's the average story, which means there's thousands, tens of thousands of those stories that are not getting rewritten and they're not getting retold because there's not a better story. So I can either lament that I don't like the behavior or I can use action to help create a new and better story. And so that's really what we did with Mercy Project. We said, okay, how do we come alongside these fishermen and treat them as partners Instead of as bad guys. And how do we do it in a way that honors their story, but also honors the story of the children and helps them become free. And so, you know, we tried some agriculture. We thought of a bunch of different ideas and ultimately we landed on there's one thing these men and women know how to do, and that's fish. So let's just empower them to be better at the one thing they know how to do to make them so efficient and so effective that we essentially make the children redundant. And why would you keep children who are whiny and needy and, you know, difficult sometimes, why would you keep them around if you have a different and better way to fish? And if we can replace the children with a process and tools that are more effective, Then the fishermen have no reason to keep the children around. In fact, it's better for them to release the children back into their families. And then if they voluntarily release the children because they have a better way of fishing, we've put ourselves in a position where they're not going to go buy new traffic children. And that's when you are really getting at the root cause is when you've replaced their need for the child in the first place. So that's really been our process to your second question about what can people learn from this? I mean, I'm really passionate about being honest if we're solving the root problem. I mean, I think this is a question that every single NGO, every single group attempting to do good should be asking on a regular basis is, are we working ourselves out of a job? And if the answer is no, then we need to be honest about why, What's, what scares us so much? Are we really scared about not having work anymore? I mean, let's be honest. If I happen to solve trafficking in all of Ghana, which is unlikely, but even if I were able to, there are hundreds of other countries where trafficking is happening. And what if we solve trafficking across the whole world? There are hundreds of other issues that need just as much energy. I'm going to have a job the rest of my life. If my goal is to help people. And I think we just need to be honest about, we should be working ourselves out of a job. And if we're not, We need to be really honest about why and what it is that scares us. Um, And then we should find those solutions that are truly going to be long term, sustainable, and last beyond our lifetime. And that should be the goal of every single organization, every board, and every donor should be asking their favorite organization those questions How are you working yourself out of a job? Is this the root cause? And when the answer is no, then. Help them have the courage to start solving the root cause, even if that requires a big pivot in the mission of the organization. Stand by their side financially and emotionally as they identify and start going off after that root cause. Because in the long term, everybody's going to be better for it.
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely so important. I want to just back up a little bit to something you mentioned, which was the about the traffickers buying the children and. I think that it will be a kind of a shocking statement to many people listening. So I would just like to dig in a little bit more to that to what I'm assuming it is economic reasons that would would cause the parents to give up their children like that. But can you say a little bit more about that and how you how you any approach you have to the kind of reunification with the families that can stop that side of things happening again?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is a hugely important thing. So. Every family story is different, but a very common story that we get is a woman whose husband either dies or leaves her. And now she has more children than she can afford to feed. And so she's sitting in a little hut in rural Ghana, literally with children whose bellies she cannot fill. There's not enough food. And she's listening to her children cry out of being hungry and and begging her for food that she can't buy them. And so it's this known understanding in Ghana that if you sell one of your children to go work on Lake Volta, that at the very minimum, your child will at least have some food because life may not be good and the work may be really hard but at the very minimum because they're catching fish every day they'll at least be able to eat a little bit of fish that's sort of the that's sort of the common understanding across you know across the country and so these mothers are faced with an impossible decision and that is you know do i continue to sit here and listen to my children cry out of hunger? Or do I send them away and hope, even against hope maybe, that at least they'll be able to have some small food every day until I can get my life back together, I can save up enough money to be able to take better care of my family, and then I can go and and buy my child back. And I just don't think we can even comprehend What that would feel like for a mother until we've been in that situation, which I've certainly never been in. And I feel an an insane amount of empathy for those mothers who are really trying to do what they believe is best for their children, as impossible and absurd as it seems. There was a quote given one time by an immigrant woman who. Came to, I think, the US and ended up being a poet. I don't remember her name right now, but she had a quote talking about just the power of uh, desperation. And she was referencing when an immigrant goes into a boat to try to go across the sea to another country. But it was so poignant for our work in Ghana. And she said, Let me, let me, I want to make sure I say the quotes correctly. She says, a mother only puts her child in a boat when the water is safer than the land. And it was so poignant for our work in Ghana because these children are going out on boats with the fishermen. And I thought, you know, that's the decision these moms are making is they're believing that that boat with a little bit of food is safer than the lands where they can't even afford to take care of their children. So a huge part of our process, huge part, is after we reintegrate the children back into the family, making sure that that family is stable. And the first thing we do is we make sure all the children are going to school and that alone gives a family such hope that they're often able to kind of dig deeper and prioritize the family or the children's education because there is this hope. There is this sense of like, oh man, you know, now maybe my child is actually going to become something I didn't believe they could become before. And then we also have social workers that are engaged deeply walking alongside those families, helping them with anything that they might need. And I don't mean financially. I mean, although we do that some, we help with micro loans with some of these moms to help them grow or expand a business that they're trying. But it's even simple things like Ghana has national healthcare, but you have to have a healthcare ID card to be able to get the healthcare. And a lot of these moms don't have that healthcare ID card because when they went to the office to get it, they were told they had to sign their name. And they don't know how to sign their name. And so they're paying witch doctors to help their sick children so their children get sicker. I mean, this vicious cycle. So our social workers will go to the office with the woman and advocate on her behalf like, hey, we're not going to punish her that this country never gave her the education she deserves. Um, She can use her thumbprint to sign her name and you can get over it. And so now these moms have this tool that they didn't have before. So I'm very, very proud that we've never had a child re-trafficked. And it is a direct testimony to the work our 15 social workers across the country do every single day, engaging those families, going really deep with them, making sure that they have the tools that they need socially, emotionally to be able to take good care of their children, but it's not a small investment. I mean, it's, it would be cheaper for us to put all these kids in an orphanage and to call them orphans, even though they're not orphans, but we strongly believe in the power of family. And so we, we've made that commitment to reunite those families when we can, which so far has been pretty much all of our children.
0: Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking to imagine even being in that position. It's uh, unimaginable for most of us yep. uh, listening. I'm sure to 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 be to be in that situation. But I think the work, you know, and the, and your approach in trying to tackle the root causes is so inspiring. So it, it's really incredible to hear about that. Just one final question on on Mercy Project. What is the future of of Mercy Project? do You see.
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, for better or worse, we got a lot of work still to do. So there's thousands of kids and we're at this really fun point now where it's time to scale. We've our process works, our our team is great, and now we need to start rescuing thousands of kids instead of hundreds, and that just requires a different level of financial commitment. And so now it's taking this white paper or case study we've essentially built over 11 years and finding somebody who loves the power of scale and getting them to make an investment in the futures of thousands of Ghanaian children and families. So that's really where we are as an organization. And it's both uh, scary and also exciting. So I'm looking forward to the next few years for sure.
0: That's an incredible mission. I'd like to talk now a little bit about your philosophy around doing good. You have clearly done an incredible amount of good in your career and in your life so so far. And you recently released a book, A Billion Hours of Good. Could you tell us a little bit about A Billion Hours? Why A Billion Hours? What does this mean?
1: Yeah. So A Billion Hours as the title, because it's catchy and, and grabs people's attention, but I really, you know, the, the subtitle is Changing the World 14 Minutes a Day. And the book is a direct response from something that happens to me all the time when people hear about our work in Ghana and they say something to the effect of, oh my goodness, I wish I could do something like that. Or, oh my gosh, that is so amazing. I just... Ah, oh, I would give anything to just to do something like that. What what meaningful life you must live. How how good that must make you feel and I was always so startled by this response because it was always said it was in good intentions, but it was always said as though I had some sort of magical characteristic or trait or like I'd been born with a trust fund or somehow everyone had removed the risk from my life. And so I was this on you. I mean, it was just like, what, what? I mean, it's, it's not like I'm this world-class athlete with genetics that are, you know, predispose me to be excellent. I mean, I was like, I'm just a guy who was willing to show up in Ghana and try to figure out what the heck I was doing. I mean, what would keep you from doing that? But what I found as I had these conversations with people is there was two things that kept most of us from doing more good. And that is, we said we didn't have the time. So we overestimated the amount of time it took to make a difference. And two, we didn't know where to start. And so we thought, well, you know, even if I had the time, there's just so many things that need my attention. I mean, there's so many different problems in the world. I mean, where would I even begin? And we just get overwhelmed. And so I thought, you know, I want to write a book to address this. I'd already written one book called uh, Disrupting for Good, where I basically talked about the need to find things in the world that bother us and then to do something about them. And then then now I wanted to write this second book, A Billion Hours of Good, Changing the World 14 Minutes at a Time. And here it is. Here's the idea. The idea is that 1% of our day is 14 minutes. And every single one of us wastes far more than 14 minutes a day. And in one month, 14 minutes a day adds up to eight hours. And in one year, 14 minutes a day adds up to 100 hours, which is enormous. And over a lifetime, 14 minutes a day adds up to thousands and thousands of hours. So we've now removed this sense that we don't have enough time, right? Because we all have 14 minutes a day, but we're still left with this problem, which is, but what do I do? I feel overwhelmed. I don't know where to start. And so for me, the whole principle is, you start where you are with what you have. And what you have today is different than what you had five years ago, and it's different than what you're gonna have five years from now. And so this game of waiting until all the stars align, spoiler alert, they're never going to align. It's never um, gonna be the time when everything is perfect. The time the best time to do the right thing is right now. That's that's it. I mean, the, the best time in the history of the world to do the right thing is right now. And when we sit and wait and wait and wait and wait because, you know, our children are young or now our children are teenagers. Oh, now our children are in college or I don't have money. Well, I don't have enough money. Well, I want more money. Well, I wanna be further in my career. Well, I'm too early in my career. I mean, we can make those, ex- and, and here's the truth. We all do that every single day. We make excuses. Why are we not more healthy? Why do we not take better care of ourselves? Why do we not spend more time with our children? Why do we not spend more time with our aging parents? I mean, we can make all the excuses in the world. At the end of the day, if we're being honest, if we're being like brutally, reflectively in our in our eyes closed, laying on our pillow at night honest, when the only voice in our world is ours, that little voice in our head that tells us the truth, even when we don't want to hear it, if we're being really honest, we know. We spend our time and energy doing the things that matter the most to us. That's just the bottom line. And if we truly want to make a difference, then we'll start in tiny little bites, spoonfuls, 14 minutes a day, where we are with what we have. And for me, and I think for a lot of the people who've read the book since it came out in June, it's been really freeing because we no longer have to quit our jobs and sell everything we own and go on a a mission across the world. We no longer have to use every waking minute of every day. We don't have to go do a 10-year discovery of the things that are the most important to us. I mean, just start doing good where we are with what we have. Maybe that's as simple as starting a podcast. Maybe that's as simple as greeting our neighbor across the street. Um, Maybe that's as simple as pulling in the trash bin or the rubbish bin of someone who seems to take a really long time to pull it in. Instead of getting annoyed or frustrated with them, we actually help them. Maybe it's finding this thing in our local community, children who need to learn how to read or teachers who don't have the supplies that they need, or they don't have the support of parents and we sort of act as fill-in parents. I mean, the list of things we could do is a million miles long. And the only question is, are we willing to show up and do them? And so the, the book is broken into three parts, compassion, which is where it begins, courage to show up, and then creativity to solve old problems in new ways. So it was a really fun book to write. And the idea is that at the end of the book, each person who reads it will make a pledge that they're going to give 14 minutes a day, and they can go on to the website I have to make that pledge. And when they do that, the hours will collectively add up to a billion hours of good, which none of us could ever do by ourselves, but collectively, a few hundred thousand people committing 14 minutes a day. Actually adds up to a billion hours, which is 114,000 years of good 365 days a year, uh, 24 hours a day, and it's a ridiculous number. Um, but it's the power in in a bunch of people each saying they'll do their small part to to make a difference. So that's really the book.
0: It's a, a really powerful idea, and I, I I love this idea that you don't have to you know as as inspiring as it is you don't have to go to ghana to to start doing good you don't have to quit your job as you said it is something that you can do wherever you are as you said and and with whatever you have i think that's a a really powerful idea and i think yeah it's 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 really inspiring really what are some of the what are some of the most um amazing ways you've seen people take on this idea or have you seen it applied? I'm sure you've inspired many people so far. i yeah. uh, love to hear about an example.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what's so cool is that this speaks to every single person in such different ways. I mean, I've had people who reached out to me and said, it was time for me to quit my job and find a job that was more meaningful. And your book gave me the impetus to to clean up my resume and put it out there. And the one woman I'm specifically thinking of who told me that story, she emailed me. She had just started her brand new job and it was like her dream job. I mean, it was everything she hoped that she could be doing as far as the impact it was going to make on others. And I mean, she said my book was the catalyst for her to you know, dust off her resume and sort of uh, get her out of this funk of routine that she'd been in. So that was awesome. I had another another man, a father reach out to me. And he said that during COVID, he'd really neglected his health and that that had a, an effect on his family. It put him in a really bad place emotionally. And he wasn't being a good dad. He wasn't being a good husband. And he started going out every day and seeing if he could run or walk for 14 minutes. And the whole time he was doing it, he hated it. I mean, he hated it. He was so out of shape. But he said he kept reminding himself of a line in my book when I said, it's good to do hard things. It's good to do hard things on purpose. And he said he just kept repeating that mantra over and over and over. It's good to do hard things. It's good to do hard things. And and, you know, he wasn't like trying to lose a certain amount of weight. It was just he needed to make space to be a healthier person person, because that was going to make him healthier in every other way. And so when he wrote to me, he'd had several breakthroughs with his wife, hard conversations, some bad habits he'd gotten in, you know, around just his availability to his family. Even if I can be pretty plain, he mentioned in the note to me, some addiction to pornography that he had really let get out of hand. I mean, he was very vulnerable in the email to me. And he said, this didn't magically make everything go away, but it gave him a new way of thinking about the things he wanted to be. And it sort of removed those excuses that he'd been giving himself and using himself and really made him ask, who do I want to be? I mean, what kind of human being do I want to be? And is it possible that I can truly become a better human being 14 minutes at a time? And the answer is yes, it absolutely is possible. One, tiny little decision at a time is exactly what makes us better or worse human beings, right? No one just suddenly becomes a great or terrible person. It's a, it's a cumulative effect of thousands of tiny decisions. And when we flip that switch to positive, good, noble, well-meaning purposed decisions instead of the opposite over time, it really does create transformation. So Now, I do believe that this will lead some people to going and doing things like going across the world and helping traffic children. But I always tell people that wasn't the first thing I ever did, right? I'd made a thousand decisions before I went to Ghana, both big and small, noteworthy and completely forgettable, that I was going to try to be a person who responded when people were in need. And... That's not a decision you make one time typically and and go across the world. It's, It's a small decision you make when you're greeting the person who's helping you with your groceries, greeting them by name and asking them how their day is going and really caring about how their day is going. That begins a domino effect in your life where you're looking for opportunities to be kind and to be thoughtful and to be generous and to do the right thing. And when you, when you do that enough, I say this in the book, compassion is a muscle and that muscle grows when we exercise it. And so when Ghana came along, came into my view, I had a muscle that I'd been exercising for decades of responding to people in need. Now I didn't know That that muscle was going to get stretched further than it had ever been stretched before. But I wasn't going from sitting on my couch to trying to run a marathon. I was going from being a pretty active runner to now trying to run a marathon. And so I actually had a puncher's chance to to be able to, to do that. But it didn't happen by accident. It was a cumulative effect of thousands of micro decisions, most of which would never make it onto a podcast or into a book, but it's just the way I viewed the world. I viewed the world with open hands. If I had something that would allow me to give back and make someone else's life better, I wanted to try to share that thing that I had. And that makes something like Ghana not feel that scary when you've had a lot, a lot of opportunities in practice to do that. So that's just a few of the stories that I hope will maybe yeah. uh, people will find helpful.
0: That's, yeah, the message is so I- inspiring and it's a real gift to the world, both your, your book and, and your, this conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time. We are coming to the end of our time. So I just want to ask a final question, really, which is, is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Any, any action you would ask them to take or any, any last message you would like before we, before we wrap up here?
1: You know, I think the only thing that I would say, James, is that I hope that every single person listening will understand how unbelievably capable they are of driving massive transformation in the world for good. And that they have the skills and the talent that they need right now where they are. To, to create more good than they can even imagine. And they are already solving problems. They are already doing things unique to their skill set, And many of the time that's their job or their hobby. And there's no reason they couldn't take those exact same skills and use them for good beyond their job or their hobby. And there is some NGO or nonprofit or just some person out there that desperately needs them to share those talents and skills and gifts. And so I hope people will feel empowered today that they will believe that they are more capable of good than they could ever imagine. And it truly will take each one of us embracing that reality and going out and and giving what we have, even just 14 minutes at a time to doing good. So I'm I'm inspired just by this conversation and by the work that you're doing on this podcast, and I think it's a beautiful, noble mission. And I'm honored to be a small part of it. So thank you for having me on today.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Chris. That's, those words mean a lot, and what a fantastic message to to wrap up here with. I really it really means a lot, No, it's really inspiring. I think for for everybody. So thank you so much uh, for taking the time. I will. I think the work you're doing is incredible, uh, and so I can't wait to see uh, the growth uh, and the future of of what you're doing. I'll of course link to the to the Mercy Project for uh, anyone who'd like to check that out, and and encourage everybody to to check out your book and and everything else that you're doing. Again, it's a, a billion hours of good, and it's a, a fantastic message. So thank you again, Chris, for taking the time.
1: Yep, absolutely. Thank you for having me.